You are listening to Underscore, a podcast of music and story. We are thrilled to share today's episode an interview with the legendary composer, conductor, and orchestrator, Conrad Pope. Conrad is known throughout Hollywood for his deep musical knowledge and artistry as an outstanding composer for cinema and one of the most in-demand orchestrators and conductors in the business. He has participated in over a hundred films in varied genres and budgets, working with composers like John Williams, Alexandre Desplat, James Newton Howard, Jerry Goldsmith, James Horner, Alan Silvestri, Danny Elfman, John Powell, and Hans Zimmer, to name a few. The now truly classic films Pope has contributed to are too numerous to list. A small sampling includes films in the Star Wars series, the Harry Potter series, the Hobbit series, Jurassic Park, Pirates of the Caribbean, the Matrix films, The Rocketeer, Memoirs of a Geisha, Argo, The Polar Express, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Life of Pi, Sleepy Hollow, The Tree of Life, The Adventures of Tintin, and the most recent, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. His acclaimed work as a composer includes My Week with Marilyn, The Wolfman, Ghost Ship, and Tim's Vermeer. In addition to his busy schedule composing, orchestrating, and conducting in studio and on stage, Conrad will once again be teaching courses this summer for the Hollywood Music Workshop outside of Vienna in Baden, Austria. We are extremely pleased to invite Conrad to the show. Ladies and gentlemen, we are delighted to be joined by the legend himself, Mr. Conrad Pope. Conrad, thanks so much for joining us on Underscore. It's a pleasure to talk with both of you. The the pleasure is all ours. Uh, we can assure you of that. You really have such an incredible career. I mean, I, I don't even think even just briefly today we could touch on all of it. We really wanted to have you on the show, Conrad, not only because of your incredible experience as a composer, a conductor, an orchestrator, but really almost as a shaman-like symbol of film music. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you're too kind. I've worked on a lot of things, and uh, luckily people only seem to remember the highs. And sadly, I only remember the low. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Yeah. I would say that uh, most of our listeners might be familiar with your work uh, as an orchestrator on so many great Hollywood scores. And I know you have a wonderful uh, job description for a Hollywood orchestrator. How would you describe the job of being an orchestrator in Hollywood? Well, I'll first give you the kind of flip answer, and that actually sort of covers it. And it was actually, it's not mine, it's one I borrowed from Phil Ayling, who was um, a great uh, corps anglais, English horn player and oboe player for John Williams. In fact, you can hear his artistry on pictures from uh, Born on the Fourth of July to Hook to probably, I don't think he was on the recent Star Wars, but for about 20 years. But Phil, who's a very good friend, was John Neufeld, who was my mentor or one of my mentors as an orchestrator. Uh, Phil once quipped, he said, orchestration is any job you say yes to. <laughs> now, a kind of serious answer. 
generally an orchestrator is somebody that works with a composer to make sure that the composer's music can be the best it can be. And sometimes that means, uh, say in the case of someone like John Williams, a composer like that, merely paying attention to a short sketch and making a big score because he's already accounted for almost all the details and you just have to be very attentive. That can be what he needs to make the best music he can have. But there are also cases, not so much these days, as I can talk about how orchestration has changed and composing has changed. But when I first got started almost three decades ago doing this, there were moments in which one would get, say, I remember one of my first jobs, I got two bars, and they said three minutes of music. So uh, orchestration also covered uh, a kind of ghostwriting. And that's what that composer needed. Now, they were what lovely two bars, and they were very inspired and very nice melodies, and my job was to sort of flesh that out and see what they could yield. I still would say that it's his composition because I wouldn't have thought of the initial kernel of the idea. But I tried to always think like him. And that uh, goes to what my mentor, Arthur Morton, said. And Arthur was very famous, as, uh, or at least within my small circle, as the orchestrator for Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, he said, uh, a good orchestrator has to have a good set of ears. And I don't mean the musical kind. That's a given. What he needs to do is to be able to listen and understand what people need from him. And I've always borne that in mind. There are very few blank bars these days because composers have to deliver very complete demos. And so, therefore, the ghostwriting is no longer done by orchestrators, but typically by people that are doing the mock-ups, if that's going to happen. And so now it's almost a team that's part of the whole composer. In the old days, a guy could write a, a sketch, you get together with them, play through it, and then you go home and work on it. Today, uh, there are buildings that composers have filled with their assistants writing and working on things. I hope that that's a bit of an answer. Yeah, we couldn't ask for a better answer than that. Uh, on the show, we like to talk about the sort of unique character of film music as a medium. I'm curious, how would you describe the character, say, compared to European concert music or the sort of classical tradition that it's so often compared to? It certainly comes out of, uh, I think, a dramatic impulse. Maybe I should start by saying uh, film music, in a way, is um, what Wagner wanted to achieve. I remember my, my teacher, Gunther Schuller, was once talking at a party, and he knows far more about, uh, or knew far more about Wagner than, say, I do. But he told this story about how Wagner, evidently, the only thing that Wagner hated about opera was its physicality, and how when you went to see an opera, that the characters were so rooted in gravity, and you could hear them move, and you would see them move, and you would see, see how the sets changed and all this. And he, he said he wished that it could just become immaterial, that it could almost be in air. And if you think about it, that's almost a description of what films are. Yeah. That, that they're a way of um, taking music, which of course exists only in the air and is rather uh, abstract, if you will, and it ties it to a medium that can flow like reality, but not be reality, and like a dream and not be a dream. And that it's sort of the perfect marriage of what music itself was always very good for doing, namely touching the spirit and the soul and raising it or exciting it. And so I think that the camera and music, it was a great marriage because as there's a sign that when you go into uh, the Streisand stage, or it used to be up there before Barbara took it over, I think Irving Thalberg said, there never has been a silent picture. 
And that's kind of true, because even the silent films were accompanied by music. And so as long as there's been film, there's been music before there was dialogue. And I think that that speaks to the emotional power of music with image. And I think that there's a particular great chemistry that happens when people are seated in the dark together and an image is projected and music accompanies it. Now then, in terms of how music is developed, certainly art music has to have its own form. But I tend to view um, film music as being a kind of almost like vocal music to this degree. Vocal music relies upon poetry. And I would say that a composer for film music, the text of his song, if you will, sure. is the film. And so he's actually doing with images what Schubert did with words. <laughs> and I also think that good film music are the kind I like. I mean, there can be something that supports the drama. There can be something that's almost independent of the drama. There can be music that's not even tied to any of the action, but only comments on it, like when you see a song score, like, say, The Graduate. There are any number of ways of approaching and any number of effective ways that music can be used in film. Uh, but I think that that's kind of the nub of it. It's kind of a, a jump ball, if you will. It depends on what the film is, who the director is. I, you know, if I wanted to talk about something in the future, I would say in the old days before technology, I think film music was always dictated by the film and there was always a close relationship with the director. But with the technology... Sadly, the composer at times, these days, I would say film music is almost becoming more director's medium because directors have such control and power to make composers do what they want to hear as opposed to what the composer wants to hear. But that's a whole other topic altogether. You know, we've mentioned just a little bit here about what a fantastic musician you are as an orchestrator. You really have so much taste and you're one of the most in-demand people for that reason. And something that I've always been so curious about that particular role and some of the challenges unique to it, how do you navigate orchestrating for different composers? I imagine the process might be unique depending on the individuals involved, uh, but do you have a different mindset in terms of your approach to the orchestra depending on the stylistic traits of the composer you kind of mentioned something similar to that earlier yes uh, absolutely i think that if i work for uh john williams well we know what that's supposed to sound like and if i can i try to look at john's um sketches and he's very precise but if there's something that i know you know it's one of those things that you're almost an editor you want to make sure that's going to be that particular brass sound and that if he wants a brilliant brass sound it's the most brilliant thing you make sure you've got the right instruments and the right register and blah 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 and he's pretty specific but say if i'm working for someone like i'll say michael convertino who no longer scores michael uh the thing was that he made uh, synth mock-ups back in the old days when the samples weren't as good as they are today and so one had to sort of hear through that and say, what, what do you think Michael's hearing or what does he want to hear? And, you know, this sounds kind of muddy, but it could be very clear. And is this a clear idea? Oh, yes, I think I know how to fix this up. And same with James Newton Howard or any or Danny Elfman, if you any of the people that you work for, you have to sit there and go, what is the heart of their music? And you have to try to have some understanding of that. And then what you have to do is take whatever you know about the orchestra and first make sure that it's that style. And generally the notes are pretty good at helping establish any style. And then saying, how can I make this more of what it should be? And sometimes you have to do very little. There's some old joke about uh, some machine won't work and they bring some guy in and people have been puzzling over the machine of what to do and how to get it to work again. And this old guy comes in and 
he sits down, he looks at the machine and jiggles a couple of things and presses a button and the thing starts working. And uh, they say, how much will, will that be? And he hands him a bill for $10,000. <laughs> they go, you came in here for two minutes and you want $10,000? He said, well, well, you want me to amend the bill? And they say, well, yeah, I mean, considering how little time you've spent. And so the guy amends the bill and it says $80 for an hour's minimum work and then $9,920 for knowing which button to push. <laughs> and so that's kind of my job at times is that it's knowing uh, when to do something, when not to do something, when everything is just absolutely right. And that's actually where I try to always start, whether I'm getting um, a piano sketch even. <laughs> Sure. Maybe they give me a piano sketch saying this would be great in the orchestra, and you go, no, it wouldn't. <laughs> this is perfect in the piano and uh, and for the scene that you've got. And so you do try to apply different rules. Now, there are things that are about the physics, and, and Marty, since you've been in my class, you know that I have this whole thing of uh, you know the whole range of the orchestra from top to the bottom, and there are certain instruments that are strong in certain places and weak sure. in other places, and sometimes they need help and sometimes they don't. There's some aspects of the physics of the orchestra that don't change, and you have to be mindful of that. And then I would say also when you're dealing with a composer, a composer can have some very good, say, harmonic ideas and melodic ideas. But say his part writing isn't particularly good, and that happens quite a bit sure. today with some of the MIDI because uh, people tend to play left hand sort of like it's um, kind of almost college uh, harmony class you know keyboard harmony class but they're very good with their melodies and sometimes the job is to quote arrange the stuff so that you write parts that will make sense to the players so you take those harmonies and you find different ways of moving through them and creating other lines that uh, still reflect the character of the music but will be more meaningful to the players than if you just sort of dumped the notes directly from the midi Sure. Um, that's been played into the orchestra. And so I think that that's part of it is that you have to, again, going back to Arthur Morton's uh, admonition, listen very closely to what is being told you and also listen very closely to the person's music and try to get in touch with their musical personality. And I think that's one of the downfalls of being a good orchestrator in a way is that you spend a lot of time with other people's personalities. And uh, so sometimes the struggle as an orchestrator when you come to compose is separating yourself from those personalities that have uh, that you've lived with so long. <laughs> right, I imagine. Yeah, it's a good point you make about the sort of MIDI composing. And we know that so many young composers now do compose with virtual instruments on their computers. Are there any recurring misunderstandings about the orchestra that you encounter from the computer school, if we can call it that? Uh, I would say less and less, actually. I mean, in the sense that I think that samples, and this is one of the things like it, I'll be talking about in Baden, uh, I think samples these days are really good at conveying that, no, this is a very extreme note for the horn. In the old days, I used to always, uh, and I still do this, I always advocate people transpose things, but the, I think the um, instrument that gets most abused in MIDI is generally the horn. Sure. People will write it too high and think that it's comfortable up there for long periods of time, or they'll write it too low and think that it's um, going to be heard like trombones. Now, that's still kind of a concern, 
But I think that samples now start to reflect, in many ways, the real characteristics of the instruments, particularly when put together. And so I think that it's gotten better and better and better. And I also have to say that I think that people that have gone, say, to Berkeley or just even the most rudimentary education, they're doing pretty well. The major problem that still exists is that people tend to be, they divide their strings too much. And generally in triadic harmony, it's one thing to have, if you're using chords, that are like ninths and thirteenths and very sort of uh, extended jazz harmonies or m complex modern harmonies, actually, where you have to sometimes dilute the strings. But people oftentimes will take a sample of, say, 18 violins and put that on six notes. Right. And expect it to have that power. <laughs> That's still, like I said, if I could, I would design um, a MIDI program that the more notes you add to a sample, it would take people away <laughs> so if you if you did two notes with your 18 uh, violin sample you'd suddenly have nine people on each thing right i also love that idea and i it'd be great to get some some programmers uh <laughs> well i mean they're, they're, they're you know i when i'm in vienna i should talk to her because uh Tuchman of uh, the vienna library because when you look at how detailed their particular sample library is of where you can take four horns and pick the microphone of which horn you want to, you know, bring up or take down. It's amazing to me that, that if anyone could do it, it'd be those Viennese because they're <laughs> nearly dedicated to their product. Well, we have to, before we get any further here, um, I want to talk a little bit about your origins working professionally in Hollywood. It's a reasonably uh, short-lived story. I, I actually started out... Um, my, my career goal when I was a teenager and then as a young person in my 20s, uh, I actually wanted to, um, I was more interested in, in concert music. Sure. And so I, I taught relatively briefly at a, a university outside uh, Boston, Brandeis University. I'd gone to school at uh, the New England Conservatory, the Hochschule for Music in Munich. And I had received a, 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 my master's, uh, my MFA from Princeton University. And uh, before I got my doctorate, I was actually offered a job at Brandeis when I was pretty young, actually. Too young. In fact, <laughs> in fact one composer at one point said, oh, you shouldn't uh, teach until you're 30 years old and uh, you should write me. And he was right, but I needed money. <laughs> but within a very short period of time, like four years or so, I thought that it wasn't really panning out for me. And, uh, you know, academe and I didn't agree. I think on a number of fronts, not the least of which um, at that particular time, which was almost uh, going on 30 years ago, John Adams was just uh, coming up. And I think that Adams and Glass and these composers were sort of a response to the sort of extraordinarily complex music of that time. Okay. And that was not really why I got into um, music. And I had grown up more or less in California, more or less. And uh, my father, uh, one of his colleagues was a, um, a music editor. I came out and talked to her and she said, oh, we need all kinds of music out here. And the one thing I could do was actually all kinds of music. I was sort of a, a kind of musical chameleon, even as a young person, because I'd had a sort of a very inept uh, jazz band in high school. And, uh, and jazz was my performance minor uh, at the New England Conservatory. Oh, okay. And so I was always adept at writing sort of songs and sort of going back and forth between pop stuff and serious stuff and writing in the style of this and that and all the rest of that. Uh, I formally studied theory and uh, counterpoint and that kind of stuff from about the age of 12. Oh, wow. 
And so I passed out of most of my classes at, uh, when I first went away to uh, New England Conservatory. But that said, so I thought, well, I had a, a grant from the New York State Arts Council to write a piano concerto. And so I took that and moved um, to Hollywood, West Hollywood, as a matter of fact, uh, King's Road, uh, because of, one of the families had an apartment there I could rent. And I took some courses at UCLA uh, Extension to find out what film music was. And one thing led to another. And uh, I, was, I took a class with a man named Mark Waters, who's now going to take over the uh, teaching at uh, Eastman School. He's going to take over the film oh, really? stuff. Yeah, he just got appointed there. And, and Mark used to tell the story that he had this orchestration class that I took. I didn't tell anyone my background. And he said he once assigned some people to write a string quartet. He said, make it like the Ravel string quartet. And he said, there was this one student that wrote something that was like the Ravel string quartet, but not the Ravel string quartet. And that was me. <laughs> and he was the person that gave me my first job, um, which was actually writing some music uh, for a show of his. Uh, that it had to be done like in five hours. I had to do like five minutes or something in five hours or something oh, for a live show. And I had to write it at the copyist's uh, table, kitchen table. <laughs> and so anyway, that turned out and I, one thing led to another. And that's how I got started. And I spent about three years, as I say, working at the bottom of the bottom. And I then managed to work my way up in my, in my own life story as I constructed uh, to the top of the bottom, but it was killing me. And so I sent out many postcards, and one of them came to the attention of Arthur Morton. And he said, well, it's clear that you know the orchestra, and I can tell you what to do as an orchestrator to get ahead, but I can't tell you as a composer because God only knows what that is. And this was a man that <laughs> in the business since 1928. Wow. And that kind of how I got started, and he got me a job with Joanne Kane. I went to have lunch with Joanne Kane. I never went to lunch. She sat me down and got me to work immediately, <laughs> see if I could do uh, what she needed, which was proofreading, and then she gave me uh, takedowns and sound-alikes to do also in the office. And so that's how I got to know Joanne Kane, and that actually was the connection that, uh, that led me to John Williams and everything else that's been good in my life. A historic moment for sure. Amazing to be able to pinpoint it to that one meeting. Well, like I tell people, is that in the hundreds, if not thousands of cards, postcards, uh, calls that I've made, two or three have been the things that have changed my life. Hmm. And that's why I tell people, this is why you can't give up. Because as my wife always encouraged, it's your phone call away. And in one week, you know, you can sit there and send out a, all you need is one person to say yes. That's so true. Wow. It's very true. And so that's why I tell people, be sure that you don't defeat yourself, you know, commit and just follow through. Because I mean, I think even the, the week that Arthur Morton called me back and I was surprised, I think I was close to saying like, God, this, I hate, you know, cause working at the bottom, but I do tell people you should always start at the bottom. <laughs> uh, because uh, then you're working for people that are almost as stupid as you are. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> and it's good to get your experience with people that are also getting experience, if you know what I'm saying. Sure, absolutely. And one thing led to another with Joanne, and at the same time I was always sending around tapes and getting a thing that was called drama log and looking at what films were in production, sending out my cassette tapes in those days. And this was before the, the sort of explosion of, of computers. And so when I first came, the, it was basically a pen and pencil kind of business. 
So when you had to do a demo, if you didn't have a Sinclair and they were like a quarter of a million dollars in those days, you would have to go out and hire musicians to perform your music. And that's how I did my demos. And I came close with a few films and uh, kept pushing that. And like I tell people, my plan B um, came into form before plan A seemed to work. And so that's, that's another part of my story, I suppose. When you began orchestrating uh, professionally, how did the workflow in those days compare to those on today's projects? Um, in those days, the workflow, what was good about it as a profession was that it was um, generally when you start out, you're always the last person called in. Um, and so the main orchestra orchestrator might have been on a job for, say, a month. Then um, you would be called in in, say, the last week when the composer was under a crunch thing and he had to get so much music done. Ah. You know, like I can tell a number of stories. I remember once I was called, the phone rang at 3 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. And I said, I answered the phone, and it was a, a colleague of mine. He said, Conrad, are you available to orchestrate? And I said, <laughs> Yes, when when do you need me? And there was a bit of a silence, and he then jumped in and said, oh, in about 30 minutes. Oh, no. <laughs> and so um, I said, oh, God. And so I, I crawled out of bed, went, and again, he, he put me at his kitchen table, and he had to do a lot of uh, big band writing, and he needed uh, bassy voicings, and, uh, sure. and I needed to arrange all this big band music for him. And so I started that at 3.30, and at 7 o'clock, through the door strode Bill Ross. And it was the first time I ever met Bill Ross. And so the guy called Bill, and Bill could work for him until noon. Because mm-hmm. then Bill was going to go work for Don Davis on oh, uh, Beauty and the Beast, I think it was, a TV show at the time. Oh, sure. And that's when I remember Bill, and that's the first time I met Bill, but uh, he got he got the DX7 or whatever the hell keyboard it was. <laughs> I, and I was stranded just at the, I, I thought like, I, I want his job. Because he, <laughs> he got to use the keyboard and I had to sit at the stupid table. Um, but, you know, in those days, that's how one could get started, is that if you could work, like being able to sit at a desk with a pen and pencil and be able to write music, was kind of the keys to the kingdom and right. the, at that time when it was pencil and paper. And that's not true anymore. And today, the workflow is actually more intense, but uh, when I orchestrate, I generally have a team of like, I'd say three people that are inputting stuff for me all the time. And I've got to, you know, we spend a lot of time proofreading. And so the schedules are compressed. I don't make nearly as much money as, say, when I worked for John Williams, and we'd have three months to, say, orchestrate something, or three months to do a picture. Now, Valerian, which is coming out, I think we orchestrated that film in three weeks, maybe. Wow. Oh, goodness. Wow. And same with Godzilla. So I just want to make it clear to our listeners, uh, you were doing all of this longhand, writing everything out. No, I was not. What I do is I now have people, in this particular case, in Valerian, we've had some uh, rather mixed uh, luck, if I would say, with <laughs> MIDI transcription by some of the copying houses. Sure. Oh, I see. And so uh, on Valerian, we did our own MIDI transcription. Then once that transcription happens, and that's put into an orchestral template. And since we were doing the transcriptions, we actually started out in the orchestral template. Then that all gets sorted out and given to me, and I sort of take a red pen, almost like a teacher, and mark all things up, of put this here and put that there, and then I write things out. 
was correcting uh, a manuscript or a kind of printed manuscript, if you will, I like see. an editor. And then we scan that, and then I scan these things and send it to the various people involved. And like in Valerian, it was Cliff Tasner, Bill Newland. Bill's kind of my main guy these days for all things because he does mock-ups, he does transcriptions, he does. Oh, sure. And then uh, Chad Cannon and I think Jonathan Keith were all on that particular show. And so we turn things around very, very quickly. And it's not the thing of where uh, I'm sitting at a desk with a pen and pencil and writing out a big score like it was uh, even 10 years ago. So it's changed dramatically. And also what's good about this flaw is that generally I do almost all the orchestration for him on big pictures. Right. Not the small stuff because he's got that handled. Sure. But our team, uh, that's how we tend to work these days, and it's pretty efficient, pretty efficient. I, I mean, I don't make nearly as much money as I once did when it was just all me because I have you know, now uh, kind of my own little team of people. <laughs> right. Uh, but that's what you need to do because uh, you know, composers want to write up to the last minute. Directors want to make changes up until the last minute. Right. And so people hold off turning stuff over until the last minute. So now you have to do like a thousand pages of orchestration in three weeks. So it's pretty intensive. Well, I think it's safe to say when just talking about film music generally, there is one name that seems to stand atop all others. And it's a gentleman you've already mentioned and collaborated with many times on many seminal scores. Uh, Will and I, and I know so many of our listeners just adore John Williams, but what don't we know or what don't we appreciate about him that we really should if we were collaborating with him, if we were actually working with him behind the scenes as, as you've done so many times? I've, I've said this before, and I'm, I don't think I've come as a shock to anyone, is that John Williams' music is transcendent, excellent, just a, a cut above, or two or three cuts above. <laughs> Everyone knows that. But I would emphasize these other traits that are actually quite rare in Hollywood, and I think have always been rare, is that he's the consummate professional when you deal with him. As I tended to say, is when I worked for John, a package would arrive Monday morning of the latest music, and uh, and I would turn in the music that I did the previous week. So every Monday it was a kind of exchange. I had the my week's work uh, delivered to me on Monday, and I turned in my last week's work. And so it was very businesslike and very clockwork. That's a professional aspect. You'll never get a call from John Williams at 3 o'clock in the morning say, can you be here at 3.30? Um, <laughs> he's very disciplined and focused and those are two words i would use and that means sort of approaching music like a performer does whenever you perform and you walk out on that stage you have to be totally focused for the entire recital and you have to give your all for those two hours and i would say john as a composer gives his all for those six or eight or nine hours whatever his schedule is on that particular day and I think that's exhausting, and people don't quite appreciate how intensive that can be. Uh, again, when it's in silence with a pencil and a piano, pencil, paper, and piano, the three Ps of uh, <laughs> that kind of working relationship, and that uh, it's a physical activity of writing all those notes. It's a physical activity of conceiving all that. And I will say for myself, uh, having done both MIDI and writing 
when you're playing something in, it's it's really different, and your mind works differently than when you're thinking it through with a pencil. And I'm not saying one is better than the other, but I will say I think the pencil will exhaust you faster because there's no playtime, so to speak. Right. Um, and so you could learn that from John. I think that the other thing that would probably surprise people is that I think he's made his career very, very well. He's been very careful about the pictures he scored. He's been very careful about his relationships. He's been uh, loyal, as well as always doing uh, good work, and has had a real sense of the business, has always had a sense of what the film business was and how to make a career in it. And it just wasn't that he kept getting great films or bad films, but no matter what his music was, that it was all, it's all great. No, he's always understood film, and he's a great, as I don't have to tell anyone, but people tend to talk about the music, but they forget what a great dramatist he is. Right. That the drama and how he brings um, film to life is really one of the most impressive accomplishments because uh, all you have to do is sit and take any of the Star Wars films and turn the, the sound down right. and sit there and go, oh, uh-huh. <laughs> is there any cue in particular that would come to mind, Conrad, where you were maybe surprised by his dramaturgical instinct? I, I know there are so many of my favorite John Williams cues where I adore them, but I also scratch my head thinking, how did he have that response or how did he think of that particular uh, you know, uh, way to what? capture that moment? Well, one that I, that always comes to mind that I saw before I ever worked for John Williams, but I was interested in film music, was Empire of the Sun. Mm. And when they arrive at the uh, air base and the concentration camp, the Japanese concentration camp, when uh, Jim is so fascinated with the plane, and he walks up to see the plane and touch it like it's a magical moment with all the sparks flying and, and the welders and all this stuff. And it looks like the Japanese sergeant is going to, he's screaming at him, and, but Jim is lost in this almost religious uh, quest or pilgrimage to the airfield. Right. And, and there's tension and it's all this, and I can imagine somebody playing the tension of the kid getting shot. And John plays uh, the awe of the child in front of his heroes. They're not enemies to him. They're heroes of the sky. And there's something about that he views flight as something transcendent. And it's in stark contrast to the brutality that is brought down from the sky and also the brutality on the ground. But when John plays um, that theme there, that is one of the most remarkable things I think ever. And then I'd have to say, in my own experience, what I kept wondering, what's this going to go to? Because when we first did um, the first prequel with Jar Jar Binks. Uh, Phantom Menace. Phantom Menace, thank you so very much. <laughs> is that when we did that Phantom Menace thing, I, I just remember thinking, that thing. Where, you know, I kept going like, huh, this is either going to be the greatest thing on earth or people are going to get really tired of it. <laughs> or something, and um, and it was the greatest thing on earth. Yeah, <laughs> and, and so you know that that's one of those things where you're always surprised. And um, I would also say AI. I think that that's one of the most. Oh, such a beautiful piece. Yeah, yeah, it's a great score because of the breadth of it. It's uh, you know, it's amazing the scope of what he can write. 
Yeah. And again, you know, when he's a great arranger, when I sometimes give concerts, I do Hooray for Hollywood, which is a great sort of snappy uh, arrangement. But he also does very beautiful uh, arrangements of, say, what he did with the uh, color purple thing. And, you know, and he knows the orchestra. He's like an old fashioned composer. Um, there's nothing you can do that he doesn't do better. <laughs> and and that's why working for him was um, for me an education because it was great to work for somebody that all I had, like I said, all I had to do was pay attention. And so in a way, I'm just very grateful to to John for uh, uh, almost the education I was given by him. So I'm very grateful to that. And uh, now you know it's uh, his grandson studies with me, and so I'm. Uh, oh, that's so lovely. Yeah, I'm trying to pay back by trying to share with Ethan uh, whatever I can. That's so, just incredible. I mean, in a sense, it is keeping within the family. I'm so curious. I know both of us are. In interviews, John Williams is so exceptionally humble and rarely seems to talk about musical details. He's mentioned before that everyone has their own musical thumbprint, but how would you describe his musical thumbprint? And would you say that he's aware of all of his specific characteristic traits as a writer? Well, I think he's aware. Now, whether or not one is, I always remember this, this kind of question is sort of like um, one that I certainly have asked and pondered and um, in the sense of when people would ask me when I taught, like, well, did Bach really think of all this counterpoint or did he, fi- did he figure it out or what did, it, did it come natural to him? Right. Sure. And, you know, a, l- a little bit of both. I think that we all have, just like we have ways of talking and cadences in our speech, that there are certain rhythmic things that we do. There are certain contour things we do. And with John, he has an extraordinary gift for a very direct, simple diatonic melody that is then transformed by a remarkable harmonic palette right. that surprises you. It either confirms the diatonicism that you hear, or you sort of go, oh my God, I didn't realize that that could happen. Right. And so that is really where I think John's imprint and his rhythmic sense, whether or not it's uh, the bass drum hit on, on uh, the second beat as opposed to the downbeat, or if it's um, the contours of all the fanfares. And he's taken in composers of, of, from Stravinsky to Walton and, and processed them and made them his own. As the jazz thing goes, uh, imitate, assimilate, innovate. And that's where I think John has uh, sort of done that because, again, he's had a remarkable musical life. Right. And I think also his his idea of performance, I think that one of the gifts he has as a composer, and it's not necessarily learned in a, in a form book, though I think he certainly studied, he had an academic training as well, sure. uh, uh, is that when do you lose an audience? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he a performer. He just instinctively knows how to keep interest alive. And and he also has an idea of like even when he has to sort of just hold a, a, a whole note, uh, so somebody can say something in a scene, he has a remarkable way of picking not just a triad, say, oh, if unless it's right, unless it's the right thing to do, but the harmonic context of whatever that chord is holding is also kind of underscored. It captures something about the emotion of the moment. Right. I, I'm just always amazed at how he spots a film. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, there are many things to learn. And, uh, you know, one of my mentors, Earl Hagen, now, uh, oh, to see. Sure. Uh, Earl used to say the thing about people like, and, and Earl's Earl was a little older, I suppose. 
but he would say about John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith and Dave Gruse and these, these guys, that they could see one of their TV shows and just see it once and be able to give you a shot-by-shot breakdown of what was in that show. And so they also had remarkable eyes for, for film, and they had uh, paid their dues that way. So when you're looking at John, it's not just the great musician, it's the guy that really understands how film works. You used to learn these things. And I think they're now taught probably pretty well by people like um, Andy Hill is a name that comes to mind over at Pulse College. And he's he used to be vice president of music, I guess, at Disney for many, many years. Oh, wow. Well, and of, of course, you're yourself as an educator, not just to John Williams' grandson, but to so many students at the Hollywood Music Workshop in Baden, which I know you're preparing to depart for quite shortly. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I've just... Um, People ask me if I teach, and I, and I always say I don't teach. I do give these master classes in Pulse, which is part of their master's thing. And then I do it in Baden because, you know, I went to school in Munich, and there's a kind of nostalgia, if you will, uh, for Vienna. And I like to share what I know. And like, and, and Marty, you know this, is that I always would say, I'm not much of a teacher, but I do know things. So <laughs> always ask me questions and as you can see I, you know ask me a question and i don't shut up and that goes with music as well ask me a musical question and we can dive pretty deep into almost anything you want to get into and i'm happy to do it because um i view that uh, the most important thing in music is really the inspiration one has and most of what can be taught is like compared to like having a farm and knowing how to dig uh, these nice clean rows of things and plant the seeds and get right. everything all set up. And milk but, the goats, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, milk the goats or know which way to milk them. But, you know, the ultimate thing is uh, the sky and the thunder and the rain and all the stuff that <laughs> nurtures the seeds so that they come up. And really inspiration and who you are as a composer, that's something you have to discover. But most of these other things can be taught, learned, or... If I can save some people headaches that I learned firsthand because I've been fortunate enough to work on so many things, the upside of that is that I've had the opportunity to make so many mistakes and learn from those mistakes. And that's a gift in life because sometimes the wrong mistake at the wrong time can be probably the end of a promising career. And luckily, I've made all my mistakes, funny enough, at the right time, <laughs> and, um, and they didn't uh, end my career. That's why I think as a teacher, I feel more like a guide, if you will. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm really curious to ask you, Conrad, one of the things that so fascinates us about film music is that really over, I guess, the century plus that you could say that it's developed, there kind of has coalesced a, a kind of culture to the music. Uh, film music often seems to explore uniquely musical features that only have passing moments in classical concert music, but kind of start to populate in a sense uh, within films. For instance, you know, the use of incessant ostinatos in action music, third relation modulations, the Lydian mode. I mean, we could go on with all kinds of things that that don't originate from film, but kind of become adopted. Do you think there's something about writing for cinema that lends itself to these kinds of devices? Yeah, so I think that all those devices that you mentioned are things that are very immediate and apparent, and uh, they work. You know, it's like the Lydian mode is really great for uh, yearning and uh, sometimes childlike innocence, tinge with a little bit of adult 
viewpoint sure. and stuff like this. Um, and I'd also double back on John Williams. All the things you mentioned are things that John has all used. But what I'd say is that he never uses them in the obvious mechanical way that you tend to hear. Like here, when you're hearing the third relationships, the gear grinding through the triads of, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, E flat minor, C minor, you know, right. and, and his Austin is always, John, that was one of the things about whenever he had figuration and you were handwriting it, what you would know is that, oh, I can't use a two bar repeat because he's changed this, right? <laughs> changed that. And because the, the pencil, the pencil invites ingenuity in a way and inventiveness, whereas the computer sometimes is Satan, as I tell people. They say the, the, the computer will tell you, that's good enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite okay to copy that and paste it over right. here. Okay. And, um, and it lies to you that way. Yeah, and I would say in particular, uh, when I first came uh, all those decades ago here, like James Horner, one of the, my favorite guys uh, to work for, him, and he was my really first quote, big man I worked for in Hollywood. Sure. But James was um, very much into classical music. And um, and I remember when one would you, people were accused of um, copying the masters or using, uh, you know, these master works as, as models or for models for cues. What happened now is that what I, I, I say is that since the computer, and particularly in the last 10 to 15 years, we no longer really use the classics. Uh, film music has uh, all those tropes that you just mentioned. Film music itself has developed its own kind of cliches, if you will. And you find most scores, or to me, it seems like most scores, rather than being adventurous by going like, oh my God, did you hear that? That's like, uh, uh, that's like Prokofiev, uh, Fiery Burning Angel, or whatever that piece is. <laughs> or we sit there and go, oh my God, he ripped Stravinsky off. That's just like Petrushka, blah, 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 blah. Or uh, that's the right of the spring. You know, rather than that, or oh my God, that's Ligeti so-and-so, or the, the Goretzky, blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> What you tend to hear is that you go like, oh, uh, that was sinister, so it's a low tone. <laughs> right. And you also sit there and go, oh, like you were saying, chasing. Oh, it's an ostinato with hits. Oh, it's – and if you know what I'm saying, we now have our own series of uh, cliches. What worries me at times is that when people talk about machines, they say – it's like the Isaac Asimov uh, iRobot, I suppose. Sure. The robots will become more human. And what I would say is that the book that should be written is how the machines tell us what they like to do, and we do it. <laughs> right. Because uh, they're very impervious to edifying us, but they are very good at telling us, no, no, you don't want to do that because this is what sounds good with this. Right. This, is what, this is what will work with us. So get on the program or quit using us. <laughs> and it ends up being sort of an invisible influence. I mean, I think anyone that even surfs the internet can relate to that. It's, oh, where did those 20 minutes go? Uh, and you sort of don't feel in control of your actions. And it's funny juxtaposing that, like you're saying, with, say, a paper and pencil method uh, where you can't even really repeat two bars of a John Williams ostinato because there's some... Little, little very filigree that has been <laughs> some little there. variation. I remember uh, you once saying, I think it was for the first Harry Potter film that didn't the copies have the ability to count the total number of notes in the score, and it was 
It was some sort of astronomical number. If I remember. Right, so, so like a uh, one and a quarter million in, in that area. It was, I mean, the, the, wow. I forget exact number was. But, you know, and that's John Williams. And, you know, and, and that happened during 9-11. And John was stranded in, in London because right after 9-11, global air travel, it was, it certainly in this country, was shut down for a few days at least. And globally, it was shut down for like maybe a couple of weeks. Oh, and gosh, right. John was uh, over there, and so he just kept writing. Would do things like uh, Nimbus 2000, which was now a wind piece, and they did that, I remember. And so he was very, um, yeah, he, he always writes a lot of music. <laughs> There's times when I'm always astonished, like on Lost World, where I remember the day we recorded something that's called The Hunt. It's this big oh. five number and all this stuff and i thought it worked perfectly and even john williams the powers of be decided no that isn't the that isn't the vibe we want for this we're going to get another let's going to take another approach but i always think about even but he goes all out for it and he always um i think serves the picture very very well and i'm sometimes amazed uh i'm always amazed when people don't sort of just say yes but uh, maybe that's my prejudice well, has your work as an orchestrator and collaborating with all of these so many, you know, diverse composers, has that affected uh, and impacted your approach to scoring and composing yourself? Oh, uh, yeah, I, I would have to say so. I'd be lying if I didn't. I, you know, I, I, it's, um, it's, it's hard to be around and do as much work and have and start out with so much awe of, say, somebody like John Williams and then find yourself working with him and, and being around his music, it's very hard for that not to have an impact of some kind on you. And it's had a pretty deep impact on me. Sure. And I would also say, um, you know, like working for uh, Horner, I think that he had an extraordinary sense about how to play the screen. I would say the same with uh, Silvestri. You know, they're, they're much different composers than, say, John Williams, uh, both musically and cinematically. But I think both both those guys have got a real good sense of what a theme does and and how um, a theme can influence and move and motivate a, a score and, and sort of make a really uh, powerful impact on the drama of a film. And so I've, I've learned from that, but um, I also know that uh, every time you get a chance, you've got to try to dig something out from underneath yourself. Or, and, um, and that's generally what I try to do. But it, it, can be, it can be tough for somebody like me that spent most of my time uh, like, almost like a performer. Uh, playing other people's music. Right. Boy, yeah, that really makes so much sense. Mentioning Alan Silvestri, uh, not too long ago, Alan and Sa Sandra Silvestri reached out to us. We were doing a segment on Back to the Future, and they they were so sweet. We, we really feel like Alan is one of the unsung names in film music. But uh, are there any memories that stand out working with Silvestri? I know uh, you orchestrated for him on quite a few projects. Yeah, quite a few. No, I mean... Um... But I remember, again, Al's very uh, professional. He always is there to serve the picture. And he really is a film composer in that sense. And um, he serves the filmmakers and he serves everyone. And I would say that that's what really stands out to me about Al. And also, more so than Horner, actually. It's very hard to take an Alan Silvestri score and temp it into something else. Because the... Oh, the I can see that, yeah. The, the melodies are so, so uniquely his. Right. Like I say, if you look at this stuff, always people always focus on the notes, but 
I also say, look at the rhythms and just where the how the climaxes are reached and acquitted and done. Al's stuff was always he he was always on a schedule and always very professional. And there were very few panics with um, <laughs> Al, but it was also a good team. He always had um, you know his real orchestrator. That I think that the the real marriage in that it's between Bill Ross and uh, Al because <laughs> um, Alan's music. I think Bill had a profound influence on Al's output when he came on board, which I guess was just maybe after the abyss. I'm not sure. Sure. Sometime uh, in the early nineties like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and Bill, you know, was just prime because Bill was always such a master orchestrator himself and he needed somebody who had the kind of projects where he could expand and was something that Al needed and Al could do what he did and, and Bill did what he did and, and I think it's it's been a beautiful marriage. And I love the idea that you and Bill have this friendship. It, it does seem like there's a there's a sort of camaraderie in Hollywood music, or at least in certain corners of it, that to me reminds me of sort of the old Hollywood that you hear about, maybe sort of Arthur Morton's day. I, I had the sense that there was a lot of sort of a fraternity and kind of a camaraderie. Is it, am I picking up on anything that's remotely true? Yeah, no, I think, no, I think uh, you know, like, uh, you know, Bill is a good friend, I think. And um, and, and I would say all the orchestrators, what I'll, I'll just observe, and I don't think it's an original thought with me. In fact, I, I, I want to credit uh, Mark McKenzie, is that um, orchestrators, since we're basically, like I tell people, if you don't like helping people, don't become an orchestrator. <laughs> Because you've got to sort of take joy in other people succeeding and that you're helping them succeed and that you're giving your best and everything and not – and it's always the case of that. Uh, orchestration is kind of like turning pages at a recital. Um, if, you, if you do it right, everybody goes, big deal. You can read music. But <laughs> screw up and it's like, boy, you're the biggest idiot on earth. Oh, and it's a kind of a little profession of that most people demean it or or if you ever talk about what you do it seems self-aggrandizing and that leads to a kind of a personality that we're all sort of like people that just want to help others and make it as best we can and that leads to personalities where we're all pretty friendly there's very little uh competition i would say i mean i think among composers that's that's different that's a sure. that's a whole different shark cage and uh, <laughs> But I would say among those of us that are, quote, craft people, uh, the camaraderie is actually quite strong. And orchestration, going back to almost your first question, orchestration is something that people that have done it know what it is. And if you haven't done it for others, you really don't know what the pitfalls or the challenges are. And so all of us sort of know the same things. And a lot of us have worked for all the same people. And so there's a kind of brotherhood. And yes, you're right. I mean, sadly, since none of us work physically on a lot anymore, you don't have things where Sandy Courage, while working at MGM would, for lunch, he, he liked to go to 20th Century Fox, which is right down the road. You just get on motor from uh, MGM and take motor straight to uh, Fox Studios. And he would like to go have lunch with um, the Newmans and with all those guys over there because right. they were much more fun. And Arthur Morton was at Fox at that time, too. And then he'd get in his car and go back to MGM and finish out the day. But there would be commissaries where the guys would get together. People, there's, there are tales of John Williams at 11 o'clock at night going to Andre Previns and asking him an orchestration question. <laughs> you know, and I'll quit, I won't mention the composer, but, uh, but it's kind of indicative of Sandy Courage. The composer was in um, some trouble, and it was a Disney picture, and 
and his regular guy wasn't, I forget, maybe wasn't available or whatever. So they started calling around for people. And they called up Sandy Courage. And this guy, very big composer name. So that's one reason I'm not mentioning sure, it. Sure. He said, composer X and Y is in desperate need of your help, Sandy. And, uh, and you know, it'd be really great for you to work with such a composer. This is what, this is Disney talking to <laughs> Sandy. And Sandy said, who? And they said, <laughs> X, Y, haven't you heard of him? And Sandy said, oh, I've heard the name, but I can't work for him. I do not know that man. Wow. And sort of goes down to it is that you're not working for the composer. You're working for the man. You had to know who the man was. And right. It was the man that you'd work for. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just as you chuckling at me, chuckling, you, you know that those days are long gone. Right. As the Germans say, four by. Those are in the past. <laughs> and, but I always loved that because it showed, one, the kind of gentleman that, that Sandy was. And it was kind of like, I don't care what kind of composer he is. I care what kind of man he is, and I don't know him. And since I don't know what to expect of him, I can't possibly do this. And those things have changed. But, you know, when you go to, uh, like I recently did some work for Hans Zimmer for the first time in like in 15 years. Oh, right, years. this is for the Boss Baby, right? Boss Baby. I heard that cue. It was beautiful. Thank you. That was a kind of specialty call because Hans needed something done that was old school. And there's no school older than I am. <laughs> it's still open. But, you know, I, I noticed that there was a kind of camaraderie and a kind of um, joie de musique or whatever you want to call it over with all the people that do work at Hans's place. And so these things have been translated with a new flavor and a new accent in today's world. And so that kind of human touch and that sense of camaraderie still exists. But differently because with the demise of the studios and the demise of the big music departments and as you know marty like when i teach uh, and i show the busby berkeley oh, right. uh, that I, when i comment on how many notes are in the thing and how many copies it took and how many people it took to, um, music's changed because we use actually fewer notes your music's not nearly as complex and that's thank god in a certain way but you know in the old days you had to have a like a factory you needed people at that place People are always good people, but times have changed. Well, Conrad, at this moment in your career, what sort of project excites you the most? Uh, well, I think actually recently it's been uh, writing my own uh, concert music. Um, though I mean, I've, I've got a couple of uh, films that are to score that are coming up if everything holds good. And that still excites me. And I like the idea that uh, the people that want me to score these things have... Um, in one case, it's because uh, somebody knew a, an old score of mine I wrote to space, to as Mike Melvoin used to say, space junk, uh, <laughs> um, Metal Beast, which is a big raging score that I did over 20 years ago.
what's amazing is how many uh, young people have grown up after hearing all these scores that a lot of people haven't heard of mine, like Metal Beast or Ghost Ship. and they've looked me up. And so uh, maybe those investments have paid off. And so I would be interested in any, I actually am interested in documentaries and whatnot because I think the documentaries provide you with a wider and greater palette. As one documentary composer I know told me, he said, oh, they're just grateful you're writing something. <laughs> uh, well, your, your work on Tim's Vermeer is sensational. And uh, there's such an audience for documentaries right now too, with all the streaming platforms and everything. Oh yeah, no, and documentaries again, the challenge is to find the drama and also not get in the way of the story and um, all that. And thank you for your kind words about Tim's Vermeer. That was really uh, just a great score. Thank you. Well, you know, I get so few opportunities, actually. I try to throw myself into them as much as I can, and uh, which is maybe a mistake. But, <laughs> well, sometimes I think, you know, you shouldn't, um, you shouldn't let uh, your musical ambitions overrun your uh, dramatic judgment about a film. But that's what I think is uh, next for me, and if I can conduct, uh, I, you know, I'll do that. I like to take out this music and, uh, and perform it for people, and it's always amazing, like particularly with John Williams, uh, how audience responds everywhere. Just at a concert in Bulgaria, where of something I arranged for Bob Townsend's uh, Res Saraband called Hollywood Love Stories, and this is for chamber orchestra. And as soon as you do like Beauty and the Beast, even in Bulgarian, they might not be able to know if it's Beauty and the Beast from the. Uh, Latin letters that scrolled across the screen. <laughs> sure. but, it's, but as soon as they heard it, uh, all the little kids, you know, they sighed. And it, it's amazing how good thematic, deeply felt music still touches uh, audiences. Yes. Oh, and I think that that might be the next platform for, uh, for film music. And also, I would say, for me, the film music has informed my concert music. And I think that there's going to be more of that as uh, time goes on. Gosh, I sure hope so. Eagerly await any new uh, Conrad Pope penned compositions, whether in the stage or on the screen. You made some claim as to not be a, a teacher. I'm, I'm not a teacher, but like I said, I know things and I actually do think about things too. So much of this wisdom really is quite precious. To just be able to pass that on, I think that's that's the best kind of education you could ask for. I was so grateful to have that experience last year in Baden and really envy the students that are awaiting your course this summer. What can uh, students that are enrolled in the orchestration course expect this year at, in Baden? Well, I think this year is that I'm going to do something, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot that's similar from last year, but we're also going to look uh, very um, closely at the scores to AI and uh, Revenge of the Sith, 
and in-depth woodwind writing and action films. And I also might uh, do bring Total Recall now that we have the uh, the score Probably available. The Omni Publishing. That's right, and that was uh, one of the first things I ever worked on at John Kane's proofreading because of Arthur Morton. Wow. So in any case, uh, we'll we'll do that, and then um, try to uh, just get people interested in how great this. Uh, the AI score is, and that enables us to talk about minimalism, as well as uh, beautiful lyrical writing. The uh, the end where dreams remain, I think oh, it is. Yeah. And um, and it's again, you know, the idea of that music and storytelling, and just the breadth of that score and how it all comes together is great. And certainly the uh, Star Wars stuff. I want to talk about the uh, sound of Star Wars, which is not um, terribly uh, unique, but I think I can show some things that uh, people might not think about in some of it, and what to think about when you do it. And so that's one of the things that we're going to do, as well as we'll look at uh, the cue that I did for Boss Baby and deconstruct that and the oh, uh, and that. And um, and so I'm very excited to share those things and then talk about score study and a bunch of other things. And uh, like this year, we're also going to do a prayer for peace for Munich for string writing and uh, dissect that. There's always something to do as well as whatever the students bring. And um, there's also this performance component of the thing, which is, I guess, all filled up, uh, where uh, we're going to record people's cues with a full orchestra this year. And I hope that Dimitri can expand that because I see that I think that what I would like is if the orchestration course could actually be a real lab where we had an orchestra for a couple of days and try things out and I could demonstrate things and it wouldn't just all be abstract. Sure. So I'm very excited for the future at uh, Vienna and excited for this summer. And um, like I say, it's a, the great thing about music is that it's almost like uh, going to church when you're a kid or any religion is that. I never get tired of hearing the truth. I get tired of, I get tired of hearing inanities and stuff, but as long as the stuff is true and real, you can you can walk me through uh, an analysis of Beethoven's Fifth almost every day of my life, and I wouldn't get too bored. So, um, so in any case, but I look forward to seeing you again, Marty, at some point, and uh, well, I look forward to meeting you in person at some point, and thank you for having me as your guest. Oh, well, it's absolutely so been our pleasure. And for any of our listeners with a passport and some availability in your schedule, if you can squeeze in this year's section with Conrad, cannot recommend it highly enough. Otherwise, mark it in your calendar for next year. It sounds like every year seems to really expand for the program. Well, I'm going to try to keep my wife's torch lit here <laughs> by dealing with um, arranging and Jeremy Lubbock. And we're going to talk about Jacob Collier. And we're going to talk oh, about and a bunch of other stuff. So full play. <laughs> Very full play. And where can our listeners follow uh, the continuing journey of Conrad Pope? I believe you're on Twitter. Is there other social media presence? Yeah, people can I, I tell them Twitter because I, I, you know, I, I, uh, I, can, I can say something in 140 notes, but not in 140 characters. <laughs> I'm on Facebook, but sadly I have 5,000 friends. But there's a thing, um, Conrad Pope Orchestration. And you can go on that, and that will probably tell you what I'm up to. And uh, hopefully my website will be updated within the next three months or so. Uh, but I'm uh, you know, busy with these other projects uh, right now, and I just saw that a new demo just arrived for me to listen to. Uh, <laughs> Exciting. 
So, and I know uh, Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets. Oh, uh, yes. And Suburbicon was another thing I did with the Alexander Desplat. That's going to be out. Uh, I don't know what my role will be totally, but I've been uh, doing some work for Wes Anderson on wow. his uh, new film, Isle of Dogs. And uh, hopefully we'll see where that goes. I mean, Alexander's writing the score. But I've been helping with some uh, sort of Japanese Daiko stuff. Oh, exciting. And then something else I can't mention, but if it comes to pass, uh, you'll see a lot of it at the Olympics. Color us intrigued. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, I'm, I'm look, I, right now, supposedly I have the job, but I don't believe that until after it's recorded and done. <laughs> that seems a good advice to live by. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, oh, yes, and also I have a commission from the uh, Dallas Chamber Symphony to score a silent film. And we're in the process of picking that film that will be premiered in February, as well as uh, The Little Match Girl, which was my orchestral piece I did. It's going to be expanded into a ballet, and I hope to try to get that produced sometime next year as well. Oh, goodness. Lots to look forward to. Let's hope. Because a friend of mine once had a poster on his wall, when all things are said and done, more things are said than ever done. And I, well, try, I try to contradict that thing because it always sticks in my mind. So yeah. thank you, gentlemen. Well, Conrad, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom that you've shared with us here today. It's uh, really, I know, an experience and a conversation that both of us will continue to treasure. So thank you again. Well, likewise, and thank you so much for asking me. And I'm always delighted to talk uh, what I care about. And our profession of film music is something I care deeply about. So have a good evening, gentlemen. You too, Conrad. Have a great night. Bye-bye. We simply can't thank Conrad enough for joining us today. We really hope you've enjoyed this conversation. Again, we appreciate all of you who leave a review and rating of the show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners to find out about Underscore. So we really appreciate those of you who have done that. You can find every episode of this show at underscorepodcast.com. And you can also send us any of your questions, comments, concerns, or thoughts for the show to our email address, theunderscoreshow at gmail.com. You can also follow us on all forms of social media, Facebook, YouTube. And as always, you can follow us on Twitter at underscore underscore show. The second underscore is silent. Until next time, everybody. And remember, we listen because we love. Take care. Underscore is part of the Marcado Brothers Podcast Network.